Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Durham University Center for Catholic Studies, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in November 2019 at a conference on the Franciscan legacy, a conference hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies and sponsored by the Franciscan families of the UK and Ireland. This lecture by Mona Shudiki is entitled Food, Friendship and Faith, Rethinking Hospitality in Christian-Muslim Encounter. So, as we've heard, in September 1219, amidst the bloody warfare of the Fifth Crusade, two men from opposing sides met in Damietta, Egypt, to discuss peace. So I'm assuming that this meeting did take place. Muhammad al-Kamil of Egypt and St. Francis of Assisi. Damietta at the time is a diverse and important port, military flashpoints, and Francis had twice before tried to reach the city and failed because of hostilities. The meeting wasn't only a peace opportunity, but also a broader dialogue. From Louis Massignon's discovery of this meeting to John Turner's erudite work on this encounter, St. Francis and the Sultan, we just heard about that, this meeting has been revisited and reinterpreted in multiple ways. According to Farid Munir, most, most existing scholarship about the meeting comes from a Christian perspective, especially a Franciscan as Francis, as Francis founded their order and still occupies a luminous place. We find Franciscan writings have taken the Sultan side of the conversation more seriously than the Muslim writings. The event wasn't really primary for Islamic writers, and the Sultan occupies only a few pages in Islamic religious history, largely in the, in the vein of weakness or compromising with the enemy. Sultan al-Kamil ruled Egypt during the wars of the Fifth and Sixth Crusades, and although he spent much of his life entangled with the Crusades, he possessed a strong belief in God and service. He was a nephew of the brilliant Kurdish general Saladin Yusuf ibn Ayyub, known in the West as Saladin, and it was his desire for peace which led him to extend an audience to St. Francis of Assisi. Well, as a Sultan, he was under no obligation to do so. And for his part, Francis of Assisi remains a highly esteemed name in Christian history, canonized in 1228. And I think I'm right in saying that the Franciscan order remains the largest in Christendom. It's unfortunate that we don't have a text of the actual conversation between the two men, although the discussion seems to have lasted for about three days. At the end of the meeting, the Sultan sent Francis back to the Christian encampments with, I quote, every mark of respect and in complete safety, according to Bishop James of Vitry, a contemporary. In fact, he apparently offered St. Francis precious gifts, but he refused with a vow of poverty and acknowledged that he couldn't accept them. As Francis left, Sultan Kamil reputedly said, pray for me that God may deign to show me the law and the faith that is most pleasing to him. At the same time, Muslims made a profound impression on Francis's heart as he saw them in prayers, fasting and giving alms. He never forgot the experience. And in a letter to a general chapter, he later wrote, At the sound of God's name, you should fall to the ground 
and adore him with fear and reverence, a line that immediately suggests the Salah prayer. Christianity sends friars all over the world, he adds, to bear witness that there is no other almighty God besides him, an expression amazingly close to the Muslim central formula of faith, the Shahada, there is no God but God. In the October edition of Ecumenical Trends magazine, Jason Verde writes that no one should note, that, sorry, that one should note significant dissonance between Damietta and modern discussions of interreligious dialogue. Most modern guidelines for dialogue, crafted in the way of Vatican II by a number of Christian churches, insist on the aspect of mutual sharing, a willingness to listen and to seek help. He writes, in that sense, I'm skeptical that Francis came to the Sultan with any intention to listen or to learn. He may have treated his Muslim host with great courtesy, but I doubt that Francis had either given up hope of converting Al-Kamil to Christianity, or expected that Al-Kamil would share anything of real value with him. According to the sources, he writes, Francis saw great utility in Kamil. If Francis preached to him and he converted him, Al-Kamil would be the means to the conversion of thousands of Muslims. If Francis did not convert him, Al-Kamil would be the means to the martyr's palm. For Francis, he writes, this was a win-win situation. What remains remarkable about this episode is that while most encounters today between Christians and Muslims are neither shrouded in nobility or saintliness, nor on battlefields or campsites, the tenor of the conversation has moved very little. Christians and Muslims still seem surprised at each other's monotheism. Often the underlying sentiment of suspicion or disinterest in doctrine and creed means there's little desire to understand mutual theological and philosophical premises simply beyond intellectual history. And for many, including me, the word dialogue remains contested. It has become an industry an umbrella term struggling under its own weight of peacemaking, contrived, often little more than symbolism, and often obscuring the injustices and the lack of listening we fail to address in our own religious communities. Whatever one makes of this historical episode, one thing is for certain. Hospitality was shown to St. Francis. Royal hospitality may have been ostentatious, but it was still a manifestation of Near Eastern and Semitic hospitality, bound in cultural practices and a religious duty. Sajina Apkinar emphasizes the pre-Islamic emphasis on hospitality as a humanizing element, and writes that along with honor and chivalry, hospitality is considered as an act of a conditional surrender to the needs of others. Generosity is part of hospitality, and consists first and foremost in providing food. In its pre-modern and pre-industrial Arabian context, hospitality is regarded as something fundamental to the desert environment and the nomadic wanderings. This virtue, they write, seems an absolute product of the landscape. To refuse a man of refreshment, to refuse a man refreshment in such a place is to let him die. To threaten the open-handedness nomadic people must depend on to survive. For the pagan Arab, charity was not simply a natural manifestation of this feeling of tribal solidarity, but very often it extended beyond the members of his own tribe to the strangers who happened to be there. But nor was it always dictated by the motive of benevolence and kindness. 
it was first and foremost an act of chivalry. A man who could make a royal display of his generosity was seen as a true dandy of the desert. In religious terms, charity and hospitality seemed to go hand in hand. Curiously, the words strange and stranger, Harib and Ajnabi, are both absent from the Quran. Unlike the concept of the stranger in classic antiquity, where the stranger was often seen as a problem. However ambiguous the concept of stranger and the state of the stranger was in the Muslim world, the attitude to strangers does not seem xenophobic, because in medieval Islam, the stranger was everywhere, anyone who had left his original place of residence and gone to live abroad. Franz Rosenthal adds that no distinction was made between leaving home for good or staying home or staying abroad for some time and gradually losing any intention to return, or simply just travelling with no thought of permanently changing where you lived, such as that was done by pilgrims, merchants and fortune seekers. Here we may include groups like beggars, crooks and wandering low-class entertainers who often had no place they could call home. It seems to me that hospitality is first and foremost a duty towards others and a way of living in which we are constantly reminded of human diversity. There are overlapping discourses on food as a blessing to be shared with others and food as a means of enjoying the company of others. There are the multiple commandments to give charity and shelter, to feed others, to look after widows, neighbours, travellers and orphans. We must give and be generous because this is how God is, and God's giving knows no limits. Within Sufi literature, giving is also associated with poverty and renunciation, self-denial, because a desired relationship with God leaves no room for any other desire. Christian faith understands the dynamics of hospitality as a Christian trace in the universe. God not only, not only welcomes us to share in the humanity of his Son, but also in his divinity, the meaning of sacramental life, and the basis of Christian spirituality. Almsgiving encapsulated in the Islamic concept of zakat is present also hugely in the writings of the Church Fathers. John Chrysostom had encouraged giving to the poor as almsgiving takes the side of the giver and pleads on their behalf. And he writes that almsgiving is a salvation of the soul. For this reason, just as wash basins are found before the church's doors filled with water so that you may wash your hands, the poor sit outside of the church so you may wash the hands of your soul. Have you washed your physical hands with water? Wash the hands of your soul with almsgiving and do not use poverty as your excuse. While the ancients placed much emphasis on hospitality as well as the duties on the guest, the giving of food and shelter to anyone in need Today, food has assumed a new social and political dimension. Perhaps the theme most associated with hospitality is food and eating. Life may be more than food and eating, but there is no life without food and eating. Thus, the theological and philosophical significance of what we eat and who we eat with connect the ordinary life with the high life. God is always present when food is being shared. A consequence and objective of coming together, pleasure is always there, implicit and explicit, and pleasure derived from food can be cultivated by art. But pleasure on its own 
does not transform the individual or society. The goal of hospitality as an act or an attitude is not some sweet sentiment or watered-down piety. It's far more radical. It demands a transformation of the self towards goodness and grace, binding theological doctrine and ethics into acts of personal and social humility. Hospitality, which centers on food, has regularly been a central theme of religious piety from an early, from an early stage, but was extolled not so much for the purpose of aesthetic pleasure, but rather for feeding those in need and cultivating relationships with those that we would not normally cultivate relationships. We, are, we ourselves are all guests of God's hospitality and have an obligation to show this to others. Our hospitality to others is a sign of our worship of God, as God is always present and guests are at the table. So much of my own writing has emerged through hospitable encounters and friendships. And for me, such friendships are made possible by modern, diverse societies which create the space and the desire for such connections. My faith in God has been strengthened by some of the soul-searching I have done with other friends. And in a way, the history of my friendships has been a history and a journey of my faith as well. In these multicultural, multi-religious societies, it's made me think about those who have brought out the best in me, unsettled me, or challenged my faith. It's precisely because friendship involves risks, takes us away from the comfort of religious and psychological convictions, even demands making difficult choices about relationships, or forces us to ponder on life's uncertainties and ambiguities that friendships matter. If a friendship unsettles us, it ultimately opens us to thinking about who we are as people and in whom do we seek wisdom and happiness. For me, my Muslim faith has been deepened by thinking through how Christians and Christian theology has, be, has regarded or spoken of Islam. And I have been drawn to this not as a fan of dialogue, but through that most complex relationship, intellectual intimacy and friendship. Friendship can be seen as a defining relationship of the modern age and its quality and meaning debated by various philosophers. Hans Gardner claimed that because friendship is not a value or belief, it doesn't fit easily within modern thought, largely premised on self-conscious modern subjects. But friendships are an important aspect of the texture of communal life. Typologies of friendship are implicit in many of the central sociological and ethical questions of today, and they have a stake in defining who we are as individuals and who we are as communities. Because friendship is not a private matter, something we do in our own space and time. Because we need friends in our search for emotional and intellectual well-being, friendship is a bit like love and can be transformative in its effects. It seems to me, and I'll just conclude on this, that hospitality needs rethinking the social and political imperative. Recent and contemporary scholars of philosophy and religion have returned to the problem of hospitality in a range of ways, perhaps most notably through phenomenologies of the stranger, the other, the foreigner, the guest, and today with alertness to the ethical dimensions about the refugee. But hospitality should not be reduced to quaint sentimentality. It costs. It costs not simply in financial terms, in how much we spend on that, our others, but more significantly in psychological and emotional terms. It's demanding in every way, 
It includes notions of forgiveness as well, as well as reaching out. But at the very basis of hospitality, I think, is compassion. A compassion that shapes our complacency, creates empathy, solidarity, and does have the power to reduce conflict. If we view hospitality as a way of life, as that which keeps God in our midst, then hospitality transcends into that which we embody in our worship and love for God. We cannot all be saints or sultans, but we can all live by the premise that hospitality is exactly that which keeps the sacred alive in the ordinary.